Hello, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. It is a lovely Sunday evening in the summer, and uh, all my Australia, New Zealand friends, it was great to be with you the past couple of weeks. Thank you for making me feel right at home, especially the couple that sat in the front row with the custom-made t-shirts in Auckland that said, I believe in miracles. Um, I'm thousands of miles away from home and people are making fun of how you pronounce words. <laughs> and that is just, you know, I mean, that's just going above and beyond. Today I have with me beloved friend of the Robcast and friend of Robin Christens, Pete Rollins. Pete? It's so good to be here. This? In roasting Los Angeles, <laughs> sweating away. Yeah, it's a little hot. I thought we were doing okay in here. Oh, no, it's pretty nice. Um, Pete and I are going to be speaking at an event in England in a couple of weeks. Yep. Um, and Pete, we always have a great time anyway, but we're going to be doing this event together. And I always love being with Pete and started thinking about all the things we talk about and thought it was time for a, another Robcast. And maybe we should do a series. Um, so the event is called Timings UK Conference. Timings Conference UK. And if you Google that and my name or Pete's, you'll get there. You can also get there through my website. Can you get through, through your site? They can, yep. Yep. So we're doing that. I'm going to be in um, Belfast. I'm going to slip in the back, by the way, and try not to pay for a ticket. Well, that's okay. <laughs> I shouldn't tell you that, but I I'll probably will try. In, uh, in two weeks, I'll be in get Belfast. Get past the security. And then the next day, Dublin. And then two days later, Paris, which would be August 9th. And then Pete and I will do this event, the 10th and 11th. And then um, the How to Be Here tour will be in London on the 13th. But all of my UK, Paris, Belfast, Dublin... Um, and then this event we're doing is in Lincoln, yep. which is a small town in England somewhere, yep. which I'm so excited to see. So um, we got all that going on, but let's do a couple of podcasts in a row, you and me, and let's start. Sometimes I like to ask Pete just one question and then see what he does with one question or one topic um, or one idea. So um, should we talk about God? Let's talk about God. <laughs> <laughs> Funny enough, like I do theology, but you'll find that I don't talk about God very much because a lot of my theology is about how what we can't say, uh, and also a lot of my theology is about how to be more human. So ironically, what we can't say why? Well, because in one sense, the, many theologians um, have talked about how when we talk about God, we often talk about a bigger version of ourselves. It's in, in LA, you can tell what someone is like by looking at their dog, right? Is it like, <laughs> is it tiny and cute? Or is it a big, massive dog? Or is it shaggy? You know, that tells you, it doesn't tell you, it tells you what the person wants you to think they're like, right? It tells you about their idealized sense of self. <laughs> so in the same way that you can- Our dog is part pit bull. I've made a lot of judgments about you <laughs> uh, in relation to your dog, you know? Um, but yeah, so in the same way you can look at someone's dog and, and, and work out something about themselves, you can look at someone's God and work out something about their culture or their values or their ideals. Um, and that is a problem in many ways, that our gods are simply flattering images of ourselves. We create our gods and then our gods create us. Yeah, they, we know they bless our tanks and they bless our freedom fighters and they condemn those terrorists. And, and, and God becomes a way of legitimizing our world and our thinking. Uh, Karl Barth once said, it's like we t when we talk about God, we talk about ourselves with a megaphone. So in other words, we talk about ourselves in a loud voice. 
Okay. I don't even know where to... That, I got like a thousand things, <laughs> directions we could go. Um, we had just been talking a minute ago about f- four different sort of classic views of this yeah. word, this idea that people call God. Yeah, because the, the, the one we're talking about now was in the 19th century... Uh, it was critiqued by Feuerbach, the philosopher, uh, who said that God is mostly a projection. And that's, he was saying that mostly when you look at people's understandings of God, it's a, it's, a, it's a bigger version of themselves. They're projecting their own sense of self onto something bigger than themselves. Um, and so Feuerbach said, this is a problem, of course. Now, you would think that if that's true, then all God talk is a problem, right? All God talk is a projection. But there's an idea that actually religion at its best is not projection, it's a projectile. And this is what John Caputo says. He says, God is not a projection, God is a projectile. And what he means by that is that whenever, at its best, a religious person's God does not justify their ideology, their politics, their religion, at its best, it critiques them. Um, you know, someone who uh, is deeply uh, spiritual uh, can, is often someone who puts themselves under judgment. So God is not this projection of themselves, but a projectile that smashes their ideas of who is right and wrong, who is pure and who is impure, who is good and who is bad. Uh, Which is the Jesus story. Yes, yes, and you see it. These people in are in. These people are out, and he comes along and says, "Actually, yeah." And these people are impure. These people are pure. These people are clean. These people are unclean. Actually, you have it all wrong. Yeah, I mean, within Judaism and Christianity, and obviously elsewhere as well, but those are the traditions I know best. There is this idea that God is not that which legitimizes us, but breaks open our understandings. Uh, problematizes the simple ways we look at the world and that actually the other, whoever the other is in our society, the one that we think is evil or bad or we need to get rid of is actually the person who can be good news to us, can be God to us, can help us, can critique us, can can help us see the problems within our own world. So within Judaism and Christianity, there's this emphasis on the other, the outsider, uh, because they're the ones who, uh, who question our way of thinking about the world. Okay, the, fourth, the four ways oh, yeah. then. The four ways. So, you know, this, this is, uh, with, we, we often think when we use the word God that we know what we mean by the term. Uh, but actually, and if you, of course, if you watch any YouTube debate, there'll be one person on the right-hand side saying, God exists, and the person on the left-hand side, God doesn't exist. And basically, I find those discussions so boring. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're both, they both have the same view of God. God is this being above, this super being. One believes that that God exists. One believes that that God doesn't exist. But that's the most simple form of Super belief. being? God is a, yeah, a super being. God is a bi- basically, God is a bigger version of ourselves. God is a being, an object. An object that we can think about, we can understand, we can you know, technically wrap our minds around. So it's everything we possess, just take it, if we're finite, then infinite. If we're limited in knowing, then all-knowing. If we can only be in one place, then the super being must be able to be in all places. Yeah. Whatever we're kind of, it's just that 
to the nth degree. Okay. Well, it's like uh, when Homer Simpson prayed for the first time, he put his hands together and he said, I don't know if you exist. I don't know if you're, if you're there, but Superman, please save me if you can hear me. Right? <laughs> that's, that's, okay. that's our God. That's super God beam. as a being, a super being. But within theology, there, there's three alternatives to that view. And the first is the mystical. So we can talk about that for a minute. The mystics have this idea that God is the name we give to a hyper-being. And what they mean by hyper-being is that God cannot be conceptualized. God is bigger, better, different than, than anything we can say about God. I mean, this is most famously uh, described, well, there's a few people, uh, Meister Eckhart said it beautifully yeah. when he said, I pray God rid me of God. Because he said, every time I say the word God, I have an idea of what that means. Uh, but my understanding of God is less than what God is. Whatever I could think up, yeah. if there is some sort of divine being, that divine being will transcend whatever I could cook up. Yeah. So God help rescue me from whatever idea I have of God. Exactly, exactly. And, and this is called dialectic theology. Um, where dialectic? Dialectic. Uh, Karl Barth was very important in this movement, uh, where he says, God is a no that breaks into all of our yes. Which me, which be, what he means is we create kingdoms and God is that which breaks the kingdoms apart. When God shows up, everything we thought we knew pff, is dust, dust and ash. That there's something, it's like being a ship uh, that's sunken in the depths of the ocean. The ocean contains the ship and the ship contains the ocean. But while the ship contains only a fragment of the ocean, the ocean contains the entire ship. So we are saturated <laughs> in the divine. And this saturation means that, and this is interesting, means we always have to dename God. Now, by the way, this is why atheism and theism have always had a kind of love affair. We think of them as enemies, but if you ever look at philosophy and theology, this is the most passionate love affair you will ever find. Yeah. There is violence, there is love, there's infidelities. These, this is the, the perfect relationship of I can't live with or without you. Because within the mystics, and this is the first form of atheism that's theological, they say every theism has to, has to have an atheism. Just, as soon as you say God is a father, which is saying something about God, you have to say, oh, but not like I understand father. Not like as a 21st century Northern Irish guy. That's different from a third century German peasant. So you name God, you nominate God, and then you denominate God, which means you dename and so interestingly, churches are called denominations, the places where you denominate, you dename God. Atheism and theism combine in this beautiful relationship. Which is why I find uh, even this whole so-and-so's an atheist, so-and-so's a... Uh, this is why I find that whole discussion so boring. Yeah, yes. And, and in, in the philosophy tradition, the continental philosophy tradition, these two, as I say, have had a very mutually beneficial relationship. There is a sense in which uh, if you write atheism with a slash between the A and the T, A stroke theism, uh, someone like Meister Eckhart would say the Christian lives in the slash. They are a theist and an atheist. And you live between creating beliefs and ideas and knocking them down and disbelieving them. And in that space... That's, that's where we dwell, between these two spaces. Which is interesting because you think about how much of the unfolding narrative of the scripture is whatever somebody has come up with, this is how God is. 
Mm, actually, no. Yeah. Bigger, wider, le- uh, beyond your tribe. Um, not just about you, but uh, like whatever somebody has come up to name it. Yeah. It's a denaming that comes in next. Absolutely. So it, within the Bible, there's a, n- a number of techniques that are used, but two of the ones that are very interesting to me are one is the multiple names of God. There's one way of not naming something is by naming it in so many different ways. So poets try to speak of the unnameable, and so they speak so much because they cannot articulate what they want. You know, you cannot speak of love, so you use so many metaphors, and sometimes those metaphors clash. So in the same way you have God as a warrior, or God as a peacemaker, or you have God who doesn't change, or you have a God who changes. Man, woman. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. All of the, and these these names don't even they clash. So when I, Eckhart says the unnameable is omninameable, what he means is the unnameable is omninameable. Yeah, which means that you will generate an infinite variety of names, and that's designed to protect you from thinking that you can have one name that names them all. You know, like one ring one that ring rules them yeah. all. You know, as got a, it. Yeah. Because that is the thing, and then like you have Moses being told. Uh, my name is Yahweh. This is my name forever. Yes, and and that that is a name that you can't speak. That's the other thing. Right, right, so right. You've got you've got all of these multiple names, and then when it comes to the one name, it's a name that cannot even be said it's because like it doesn't have breathing. Voice. And then yeah. Paul finds himself uh, what like uh, the New Testament Acts chapter fourteen finds himself talking to a bunch of Greeks who have no idea who Yahweh is. So he just says, "Oh, you have an idea of a god. You call it a theos." So I'm going to talk to you about the. Th-. He just simply uses a different name. Yeah. Like yeah. when in doubt, you just use a completely different name. Absolutely, and and there's these Russians uh, who would who would knock holes into their walls because instead of having just icons, lots of different icons that would make you think about God, the ultimate icon was an empty hole. Was an empty hole, a gap, <laughs> a gap, a space. The hole worshippers they were called. You yeah. talked about in your um, in Peter Rowland's first book, <laughs> um, in your first book, how not. To speak of God. Which was all about this, actually, this first one. That, you yeah. have this fantastic thing in the opening chapter about God is that which about nothing can be said, and God is that about which we should never stop speaking. Yep. Yeah, so my, my first book, How Not to Speak of God, and of course you can hear the title, How Not to Speak of God, um, was was exploring this idea of the hyper-being of God, that in some respects, what we cannot speak drives us to speak. I mean... My own. Uh, when I was young, uh, I didn't speak for ages. Way after everyone else in my family speaking, they had speech therapists came around to work out what was wrong with me, and then they discovered. And now you go around the world speaking. And that's yeah, you can't shut me up. Yeah, but they found <laughs> out that every time I wanted something, I pointed at it, and my sister would then get it. So if I pointed at a cookie, my sister would get the cookie, and my the speech therapist said, "Just tell your daughter to stop doing that," and she stopped doing that, and I started speaking. <laughs> so, but I, I speaking comes from in a sense, frustration and wanting something and not being able to articulate something. like The, the, the poet is driven to speech by, by trying to articulate something they cannot articulate. That, that's why it's sometimes better to think of theopoetics and theology. So someone like Caputo talks about theopoetics, that this is not theologos, you're trying to put God into a word, but actually theology at its best is is this language that draws you into something you cannot speak. By the way, this is why Tillich said that, that you know, someone says, oh, if, if theology is symbolic, 
then it's just symbolic. And he goes, oh, no, no, no. It's just literal. If something's literal, it's just literal. Symbolism is more than literal. Like if you, um, if you, if, if someone rose from the dead uh, somewhere in the world and it was on TV tonight, we probably wouldn't even watch it. We might watch it if it's not Friday night and then we might talk about it in the pub. But someone rising from the dead is of no real interest. It's just like a bit of a bizarre thing. There's no Lazareans running around the world, you know. Um, if it's just, if it's just literal, if it's just a literal a Lazarine, thing, Lazarine, followers of Lazarus. Yes, because he rose from the dead. I've supposedly. never heard. You're yeah. right. Yeah. So if if it was just literal, it would just be a bizarre thing. For Eckhart, it says if 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 it's not something that impacts you subjectively, then it doesn't mean. It. So it's the same like a, a, a flag. A literal flag is just cloth and colors. But if it's a symbol, the cloth and the colors also help you participate in it. So whenever Tillich says theology is symbolic, he's saying that this is a discourse that helps us participate in a reality that we cannot kneel down. We are taken up in it. Like the ship in the ocean, we are taken up in that which we cannot speak. So theology for the for the mystics is a type of uh, a, a type of po poetics. So the literalist misses the actual power that pulls you into participating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is why. I mean, this is this is actually why I call myself a theologian, although I'm trained as a philosopher. Is uh, for what was your PhD in? Uh, continental philosophy and political theory, post-structural theory. Uh, post-structural theory. Yeah. So. You know, Fun and games. <laughs> I, get a, I get a lot of guests in here with PhDs in post-structural oh, theory. Uh, every day, every day. <laughs> but, but the, re the How reason... How many people in the world have PhDs in post-structural... What was it again? Uh, post-structural theory. I don't know what is. I don't even... Don't ask me what it is. I did a PhD in it. Um, there's, there's a few knocking around. Like you all know each other? Uh, yeah, we probably actually do. There's a few <laughs> conferences. I don't go to the conferences anymore. A but... post-structural theory conference. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, that sounds is a like good fun. time waiting it's, to happen. It's a party. It's a party. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the reason why like, I consider myself a theologian is because Tillich says... Paul Tillich, by the way. Oh, Paul Tillich, Incredibly sorry. influential thinker. Oh, yeah, yeah. Someone I deeply admire. Oh, I love that guy. Yeah, and, you know, critically engaged with whatever, but I like him. Uh, he says that the theologian is someone who is taken up in the thing that they're concerned with. So... You, it's like if you're a philosopher, you can you know you sit back and you look at something, you think about something. But if you're participating in the reality that you're speaking of, uh, he says you're kind of doing theology. And so I feel that I'm taken up by the the topic. It's not something I do as a vocation. It's not so, or it's not something I do as a uh, as a professor or anything like that. I'm taken up in it. And so Tillich says, that then you're doing theology. So the mystics, they say, you can't talk about God as some sort of dispassionate object that you can kneel down. You participate in a reality that transforms you, and you have words for that participation. But those words don't kneel it down. It's almost like this. Imagine someone has an experience, and then they want to create uh, memorialize it. They want to build a church. They experience something spiritual. Now, if you're a very talented architect, you'll build an incredible church. And if you're not very good at architect, you'll build kind of a little crappy church. But So one of them is more beautiful than the other, but neither of them define the spiritual experience. Both of them are in the aftermath of the experience and show a fidelity to it. 
So in the same way, someone, has, someone like Thomas Aquinas has an experience. They're incredibly intelligent, incredibly thoughtful. So they create a beautiful architecture of words. And maybe someone else has an incredible experience, but they don't have the same education. So, you know, their way of talking about it isn't as, you know, it might just not be as appealing or beautiful. But neither of them capture the experience. You know, they're both responses to it. So that's what the mystics are talking about. Ah, oh, so good. So you have high, uh, super being. So yeah, so and it best that yeah, God is a being. Yeah, that's even better. Just God is a being or a bigger being than ourselves. A bigger, ver- just yeah, just a being. Then just there's an object. God as hyper being. Hyper being, which is of a you're basically trying to find language. Metaphors, images, visuals, God is fire, God is rain, God is storm, yeah. God is protector, God is warrior, God is mother, whatever it is that helps give language yeah. to this sense that there's more going on. And, and Anselm defined it very well, where he said, God, in his proslogion, he said, God is that than which none greater can be conceived. And when people first hear God that... Is that of which nothing greater can be conceived. Yes, God is that than which none greater can be conceived. Now, the reason why I have to be precise in how it's said is because people think that he's saying God is the greatest conceivable being. But that's the first one. That's God as a being. God right. is the greatest conceivable being. Anselm is saying, no, God is... Because we can conceive of something more than conception. This sounds bizarre. I can conceive that there's something bigger than I can conceive, right? I can think that there's something bigger than I can think. And Anselm says, that's where God dwells. So it's clever. That's, that, that brings you to the second one where you say, okay, yes, of course, I can think that there's something greater than I can think. And Anselm says, so don't ever think that you can think God because God is always greater than you can think. Yeah. And, and so he's trying to protect you from idolatry. And that's why Paul Tillich says that uh, there's a form of atheism that is closer to God, that most, the, most theism is idolatry, because most theism treats God as an object that you can think. And he says, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. I love uh, Moses being told, no, you, you can't see the divine, but you can, I'll pass by the cave opening. Yes. You can see where I just was. Yes. That's the best you can do, is you get to see a spot where I just recently was. Yep. Oh, yeah. Which I think is a very early primitive acknowledgement of what you're speaking of. Absolutely. I mean, within the Jewish tradition, mystical tradition, this is, this is, it's all there. I mean, we're not doing some kind of contemporary thing here. Right. You go right back to the, 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 the old rabbis. Um, they're, they're constantly, um, telling stories about how God is, is different than, than we can conceive and that theology is not agreement on a worldview. Theology is about entering into a conversation that has been going on for thousands of yeah. years and, and participating in that ongoing conversation. It's about loving. So it's like, it's like going into a, a museum and looking at a painting uh, where some people are going like, what does the painting mean? You go like, no, the issue is, do you love the painting? Do you let it speak to you? Yeah. Uh, and of course, it will speak to you in different ways because there is no single meaning to the painting. There's, two, there's multiple meanings. It, it's, it overflows with meanings. And so instead of like somebody saying there's a singular meaning to God or, or to, to the Bible, you go, well, like any beautiful work of art, it's, it's, it overflows with meaning. So you can never pin it down. You, the question is, are you taken up by it? Yes, because you'll come back to that same painting over and over and see something different every time. Yeah, Kristen and I were just in 
was it Brisbane, that art gallery? Right. Um, we were in Brisbane, and this art gallery had this massive hall when you come in, and somebody had hung from the ceiling black inner tubes that had been crimped and shaped and stuck through each other. There must have been a hundred of them hanging by clear string, and it was uh, like, must be truck inner tubes hanging mm. from the ceiling 30 feet above your head. But, it, but my first thought was, if I come back here tomorrow and see this, I'll see something different. Yeah. And I if mean, I come yeah. back the next day, just we like yeah. the way the light shone on it, the way it, they're hanging there, sort of suspended, that art has this beautiful, you hear a song and you hear things you never heard in the song. Um, and much art, especially contemporary art, it, it's hard to get if you think that you're supposed to get it. A lot of contemporary art is about stopping you from trying to get it so that it can get at you so that you can have the experience yes so yeah so with theology instead of getting it how does it get at you which is interesting to me because i'm struck with how often i'll be speaking somewhere and one of the questions will be a question of a right and wrong i just don't want to get it wrong Mm -hmm. and in the person's question sometimes there'll be a lack of participation yeah it's like i just don't want to be i just don't want to be wrong yeah which is very different from, man, I don't want to miss out. Yes, that's it. I don't want to have it right in front of me the whole time and I missed whatever it is. And we think sometimes the best relationships are relationships where we get each other. But sometimes when you really love someone as you get deeper in a relationship, you go, the most beautiful thing is I get that I don't get you. (laughs) That you get at me and, and something happens when I'm with you. But actually... It's not that we all agree on everything, that you're a mystery to me and not getting you is actually part of what it means to love you. I, right. We're years into it and I'm still, yeah. I'm still figuring, learning new things. Okay. Yeah, we're only in number two. Super being, <laughs> hyper being. Yeah. Are we, have you gone to number three yet? Number three is ground of being. Ground of being. Ground of being. Super being, hyper being, ground of being, which is a phrase from Paul Tillich. Yes. I'm reading his My Search for Absolutes right now, by the oh, way. Oh, that's great. Do you the have book the with drawings. Do you, I was going to say, yes. do you have the one with drawings? A brilliant. Isn't that so, so cool? Yeah. I don't understand <laughs> I don't understand the drawings. Oh yeah, yet. the drawings. Although sometimes they just they that, that's the thing where you know sometimes you don't get the drawing, but it gets you. There's a couple of those drawings oh, are very he's, good. Okay, so um, Robcast friends, Paul Tillich, uh, a really extraordinary thinker. One of his main books was called The Courage to Be. Mm-hmm. Um, so third i third idea, and you're walking us through yep. just to pause for a second. Four different sort of ways people talk about God. Yep. Three is ground of being, which is. Yeah, so this this is slightly different from hyperbeing, which we just looked at, which is the most orthodox form of thinking about God. Uh, you know, so if you want to be more orthodox, you go with the mystics hyperbeing. Ground of being is slightly different. Ground of being uh, is where you say that God is that from which everything arises. Everything that is arises from a ground, and that ground we call God. Now, it's, it's slightly different from hyperbeing. For, so for Tillich, he says, this means that all speech about God is symbolic because as soon as I say something about God, there is a subject, me, saying something about an object, God. Uh, so there's a split. And, and Tillich says, but God is, it comes before subject and object. 
So as soon as we make God into an object, we miss God. Because God is not an object. God is that out of which subject and object arise. So there is, I am standing at a distance arguing or making observations about this being or idea or argument, um, which is very different from... I'm breathing and the whole thing exists. Yes. And where did that come from? Yes. So for, yeah, exactly. So for Tillich, now, I mean, he has a, he has a really interesting approach because for the mystics, there is a sense in which you connect with what we call God or the absolute through, in a sense, contemplation and kind of like not through intellectual means, but through experience. Uh, for, for Tillich, he says you encounter God through ultimate concern through giving yourself to the world in love, giving yourself to justice. You can never love God because God's not an object. You love objects. You, you love someone and in loving someone, you love God. So God is not an object that you love. God is that which you discover in the act of love itself. Right. It's a very subtle but really interesting huge. change. Yeah, it's huge. It's because huge. Because I, I remember growing up and someone was like, I mean, I just really love God. And yeah. I was like, I don't know what that means. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't. Where? Who? How? No. There's a crazy. There's a crazy idea, and you'll never read it in the Bible. That if you love your neighbor, you love God. You know, and if you don't love your neighbor, you don't love God. Now you'll never find that anywhere in the book. Like, but that's kind of what Tillich's saying. But that's a crazy idea. That that and and Tillich is is he writes beautifully about this. He says, you know, and this this is called religionless Christianity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Is also into this is actually where my later books go. So my first book is very in the hyper being. Uh, some of my later books get into ground of being, where I say that religionless Christianity is where you forget about loving God, you act in love towards the other, and strangely, in the very moment when you thought you lost God because you're just loving the world right, and people right, in the world, right, right, right. you actually discover right. God in right. that loss. So um, it's interesting, right? Like especially like yoga now, you'll often. Here, source. Oh, right, yeah. We're gratitude. We're grateful to source. Uh, lots of people talking about source. Lots of people talking about breath. Yep. Which obviously we've been talking about for thousands of years. But I, I noticed lots of people returning to these very early practices of breathing, gratitude, presence, which are the whole thing is here. It, yes. It rests on something. Yeah. It flows. I realize in my new everything is spiritual tour and film thing, I was trying to give people a different version of ground of being. 13.8 billion years ago, there was an explosion. The whole, some, what is moving the whole thing forward? Yeah. Um, what is the whole thing in? Yeah. As yes. opposed to where is God, much better question, where are we? Are we already in, resting upon? Yes. John Robinson talks about this in my favorite book ever, Honest to God. Yeah, I remember when you first mentioned that, you heard me talk in Greenbelt and you said, oh, that sounded very like... John Robinson, Honest to God. And I was like, you read Honest to God? That's oh my word, brilliant. That book is, yeah. I don't think any book has shaped me more. There's yeah. like that and one other book have shaped me more than any book. Because that was a huge bestseller in the 60s, but yeah. then you know disappeared. But actually, as an aside, I think some of the best theology was being done in the 60s. I spent a lot of time reading theology from the 1960s. <laughs> I, I can't believe... Um, by the way, folks, that was Honest to God by John Robinson. It is the thinnest book you will buy for $4... That will take so long to read. <laughs> yeah, it's so dense. Yeah, in just a few words. He's great. So, um, so there, there is like, there is a, there is something that's shared between ground of being and hyper being. But, but the idea of source and breathing 
I still think that 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 sits very neatly in with the mystics. Oh yeah, right, okay. where where Tillich goes and and Bonhoeffer, they're they're also embrace that, but they have a very material thing. So their yes. ultimate thing is yes, you 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 experience that, but then in in kind of giving yourself to a vocation, to a cause, to something that you feel is bigger than yourself, uh, in that you find you know, what what the religious would call God or the absolute. And and everyone has it, Tillich says. It says, when you're a kid, if you refuse to eat your Brussels sprouts and your parents say, if you don't eat those Brussels sprouts, you're not leaving the table. If a kid does not leave the table and sits there, and which happened to a friend of mine for eight hours, that's ultimate concern. You care more about not eating your Brussels sprouts than anything else, you know? And eventually your, your parents give up and you win. Ultimate concern is that Tillich says, you will find meaning in life when you can find something that you feel is worth living and dying for beyond yourself. Now, he then adds to it another little complication. He says, not all ultimate concern is good because fascism is a kind of ultimate concern. He says, says, "There's, there's a form of diabolical, demonic ultimate concern. And he says, and there's a form of faithful, beautiful ultimate concern. And the former is when you make something that's not ultimate, ultimate. When you make something that, so patriotism, where you say, whether my my country right or wrong, whoever they bomb, whatever they do, I'll live and die for it. He says, that's a problem. But he does say, but if you're a patriot, but you say, I love my country so much, so much, that whenever I see it doing injustice and not living up to its ideals, I will fight against it for the sake of it. He says, that's, a healthy ultimate concern because you're giving yourself to freedom, democracy, justice, to these ideals that that you can't put your finger on. But ultimately Tillich is saying, if you can find something that floats you, that, that, that you want to live and die for, that is about uh, bringing life, more life to the world, then that's how you find God. That's ground of, that's ground of being. Wow. Okay. Super bean, hyper bean, <laughs> ground of bean, fourth way that people talk about God. Okay, the fourth way is very interesting, and you find it in some contemporary thinkers. It's God as event. God as event. And this is where some people have said, God is the name we give to that which calls us to greater love, freedom, democracy, hospitality. It's that which refuses, it stops us from reducing the world to one-dimensional materiality. Because philosophy has always had a problem. Continental philosophy, you can read it as... Um, can oh, you define continental philosophy? Oh, yeah. There's, there's kind of two types of philosophy, analytic philosophy and continental philosophy. And continental philosophy is more interested in questions of, um, you know, polit- politics and how to live. And uh, analytic philosophy is, is more interested in logic, more science-based. Uh, it, there's a big conflict, crazily, between analytic and continental philosophers. <laughs> but um, uh, in continental philosophy, uh, there's, there's this problem that if you think of the world as a two-tier thing, uh, mind, body, spirit, material, you, you get all sorts of problems. It's called Cartesian dualism. You just have a whole world of problems. But you also have a whole world of problems when you say the world is just material, just 
purely a material cells, so, yeah. trees, atoms, yeah. rocks. You've got loads of problems. So a lot of philosophers fi- try to find ways of of not reducing the world to pure materiality and not creating a simple two-tier universe. So Simone Weil, for example, she talks about gravity and grace. She says the world is gravity. And what she means by that is it's the natural laws that things fall, planets revolve, but it's also the world where affliction is paid back with affliction, suffering with suffering, hatred with hatred, violence with violence, war with war. For her, that's as natural as, as rocks falling to the ground. And then she says there's another reality, which she calls grace. I think if I had a tattoo, I would get gravity and grace, I think. Grace is not a different world. Grace is what is this something that's peppered within gravity, which stops us from repaying violence with violence, but rather violence with peace. Stops us repaying hatred with hatred, but hatred with love. Um, it's that something speckled in the universe, which just makes it not one-dimensional, that calls us to be better selves. And that's God as event. And funnily enough, if you want to know where these fit, God as event is the most atheistic. Like there's a lot of people who don't think of God as a being out there, but they like God as event. Uh, God as hyper being is the most theistic. That's the most orthodox Christian. And the middle one, I was saying earlier to Kristen, that's like Goldilocks, God as ground of being. It's like, you know, it, it, it's a little bit blurry as the weather, you know, it's theism or atheism, it's a bit blurry. So you've got all three of those choices. But God as event means, and Derrida, the philosopher Derrida talked like this, he said, there is something, uh, every time we try to talk about justice, we end up creating something that's less than just. Every time we try to instigate democracy, it's never quite the way we'd like it to be. But there is something that calls us to always rethink our, our laws and democracy and our freedoms to make them better. And if we give ourselves to that, we are giving ourselves to what the prophets of old gave themselves to. Oh, uh, you know, it's interesting. Like you look through the Exodus story um, and for lots of the, the sages and the rabbis, the Exodus story was about slaves being liberated from oppression. Oh, yeah. That you can have all your nice, lofty, abstract ideas, but the divine is about the liberation in time and space. Yes. From whatever you need to be liberated from. Exactly. It's that call. It's that event, and it's giving yourself to that event. Emmanuel Levinas, who's a very orthodox Jewish thinker, he defined atheism uh, as uh, subtracting yourself from the other, living for yourself. And he defined theism as giving yourself over to others, to working for justice, working to, to giving yourself to that call. Now, that's a weird way to define atheism and theism. But within that Jewish place that he was speaking from, he was like, yeah, the, whenever, the, whenever the, the prophet you know, talks about the divine, the prophet is talking about righteousness. The prophet is yeah. talking about freedom. The prophet is talking about slaves being freed from their shackles. That's what he's talking about or she's talking about. Yeah, there's this great uh, line in the prophets about to, uh, to know me is to care for the poor. Like, yeah. It's not just how you arrange your intellectual furniture in your head. This is 
go care for somebody who needs it. Yeah. That's where I'm found. Amos says, I despise your religious festivals. Let yeah. righteousness flow like a river, justice like a never-ending yeah. stream. You know, the, so interestingly, these, again, these are not writers, you know, Derrida is not someone who's trying to think of some clever new definition of God. He's reading the Hebrew scriptures and he's reading the Christian scriptures and he's going, oh my goodness, there's something about a call to, to, to beauty that's happening there. And, and Tillich's the same. Tillich says, if you have somebody arguing for God and somebody arguing against God, and the person arguing for God is saying, well, you know, look at all the great things that have been done in God's name. Look at the orphanages that have been built. Look at the hospitals that have been built. And then the other person says, but look at all the horrors that have been done in the name of God, all the wars, the yeah. torture. Tillich would say, both of them are showing a care and concern for the world. So he says, both of them are affirming that God is the ground of being. Both of them are standing in the very same tradition as the prophets. So, the um, hearing you speak, a couple thoughts. First, I'm struck with how many people in a in our world um, would say they don't believe in God, they don't know if they can do the God thing, et cetera, et cetera. But then, when you just have a bit of conversation about that, they're talking about a very particular, generally super being. Yeah. view and aren't aware that there are lots of other ways of understanding this term the divine god yeah. etc yes absolutely and you see the same thing yeah and, and in fact you know you've got simone Weil and paul tillich and heidegger who all say atheism contemporary atheism is closer to the biblical tradition and theism and they say it in different <laughs> yeah it's crazy and they say well i've had that experience often yeah, yeah. where I, I somebody will be like oh i don't believe that anymore i'm an atheist and I'll say, well, fantastic, let's talk about it. And then they begin to articulate a worldview that's like, oh, you're actually articulating very sort of straightforward Orthodox faith. Yeah. <laughs> You've yeah. just rejected a God who should be rejected. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole argument. Uh, it's an argument that I personally affirm and, and argue for, uh, that, that what you see within uh, the best of the Jewish and Christian tradition, and as I say, likely other traditions, is that this is not about getting the right belief that it's never been about, you know, getting the right thoughts in your head. Like Kierkegaard says, this is not an exam that you have to pass to get into heaven. You know, tick the right boxes and you get in. It's about a different mode of being. It's about a different way of life. And so, in other words, if that's true, and, and by the way, in psychoanalysis, there's an idea that we don't even know what we believe. We think that we know what we believe, but what we believe is often hidden from us. What we think we believe is often um, a trap. Uh, it's, a, it's an idealized form of ourselves that we use to hide. So for example, I might say that I, you know, I love my parents whenever I never actually phone them or go and see them. Um, and actually the truth is not in what I think, the truth is in what I do. So within Christianity, there's this idea that, that belief is not in the head, it's in the heart. And one way of thinking about that is saying that, that faith at its best is about attempting to orient yourself differently in the world, not have a certain view about the world. Oh, so good. Mm. Now, to somebody who says, um, I'm sure you've had people say things like, why even bother talking about God? Let's just leave all this behind. You would probably, I'm guessing you, your first answer would be, well, you are living your life according to something. 
Yeah. How would you generally respond to those sorts of, oh, come on, let's leave this discussion, let's leave this behind? Yeah, I mean, I, I can appreciate that. It's, it's, it's difficult for us, I think, especially I live in America now in America, not to be immersed in that kind of language. It's, uh, there's, a, there's a philosopher, uh, Guiano Vadimo, and someone once asked him, why do you call yourself a Christian? Incredibly intelligent guy, Italian. And he says, well, I can't not call myself Christian. He says, I, I grew up in a world where that language meant something. I was immersed in it. I was part of it. Even if I reject it, I'm rejecting it. I mean, I'm, I, so I'm still in relationship with it. So for, for many of us, this is the language that we have. And, and for me, the, pr the point is not to go from one set of lang one language to another. So you go, okay, this language of God doesn't work for me, so now I'm going to take on you know, secularism or humanism. That's fine. You might want to do that. That's fine. But the problem might be that you embrace the humanism in the same way that you embraced yes. your Christianity, right? Yes. So at the level of what things are different. You believe different things, but at the level of how, how you believe what you believe, it's exactly the same. You hold it in the same way. Yeah. So if, 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 a, if a humanist and a Christian are arguing and they both simultaneously convince each other that they're right, and then they move to the other side of the stadium, what's changed? Potentially that what they believe is, is, is different, but not how they believe it. For me, I'm more interested in how your belief functions. Because, for example, someone might believe in God, but they believe in God because they grew up in a family where if you didn't believe in God, you were going to go to hell or you were going to get kicked out. You might be sent to the orphanage. So even though at level of what, you might go, well, I, I like that person believes in God. The reason why they believe is terrible. And somebody might believe something very different from you, but they believe it in a healthy way. So my thing is, is not to get too caught up in what you believe, but rather how you believe what you believe. So good. So good. Oh, my word. Okay, so I think we should pause here, and then next podcast, we'll jump in again. Wonderful. Because we were talking about the symbolic, imaginary, and real. Oh, yeah, we're going to go we're so going to we go probably fun do that places. the next one. If you're up for it, I would Absolutely. love to. Yeah. Okay, friends, how's that? How are your brains doing now? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I just love doing these interviews with you, man. I love working with you so much. <laughs> I really do. I love it. Pete Rollins' books are How Not to Speak of God, The Orthodox Heretic, um, The Divine Magician, The Idolatry of God, The Fidelity of Betrayal, and new... He has a new one coming out called The Secret of the Purpose-Driven Shack. That's <laughs> <laughs> going to be my bestseller. I've, yeah. <laughs> I've been doing that, telling people that my next book is The Secret of the Purpose-Driven Shack, which uh -huh. is not because it makes me laugh. Um, those are very, very big selling books, by the way. Three. I, I hope you get that joke, folks. Uh -huh. um, okay. This was fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank I you I always so love much. it. And those of you in UK, Europe, England... Um, we, Pete and I would love to come hang out with you for two days. Yep. We'll literally be hanging out in a small English town for two yep. days, talking and talking to people and hanging out and eating in pubs. Oh, yeah. It's going to be fun. Right. Curry. I'll find the curry, curry in that yes. town. The, the national okay. food. That's Timings UK Conference, Rob Bell Pete. Anyway, this is great fun, folks. Grace and peace. <laughs>